kind of help from the Lord does not come naturally to us. And one of the means that God communicates to us, one of the means of grace that he communicates to us and how he communes with us is through prayer. We hear God speaking to us by his word, but then we respond back in prayer. And so we come before the Lord asking for help. We come before the Lord asking and acknowledging the fact that we are helpless in ourselves to come, to, to come into his presence, to ask for the things that he requires. And so we always need to learn how to pray. This is why for the next month or so, we're going through all of the prayers of Paul. There's a lot that he prays for, and you'll find that there's a lot of overlap in some of these prayers. But the prayers of Paul are not just specific to Paul. These are the prayers of the church. In fact, as you go from the Old Covenant all the way into the New Covenant, from the Old Testament saints, even to the New Testament, even to today, we find that as the Spirit is at work in the life of this church, we are asking the Lord for the same things. We understand that we fight, as Christians, the threefold battle of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so prayer reminds us that we are helpless in ourselves to do the things that the Lord has called us to do, And so we come to him in humility. So as we look at our text this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're looking at Paul, probably one of his earliest letters that he's written to the church in Thessalonica. This is a church in the region of Greece, northern Greece, known as Macedonia. Thessalonica was a city that was named after Queen Thessalonica, who was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. So, when we look at Thessalonians, or the Thessalonian people, what makes them tick is that they're very proud to be Thessalonians. It's kind of comparable to people who are from New York and are proud to be New Yorkers. Some are proud. But as we come to the Thessalonians, as we come to these letters, we're coming, to, we're coming face-to-face with a man who basically risked all of his life to make sure that these Thessalonian believers were okay, both physically and spiritually. How far would you go for a believer that you met a day ago? How far would you go for a believer that you just met three weeks ago? Some of us don't even remember what we were doing three weeks ago. But how far would you go for that person that you just met that just came to know the Lord? Would you treat them like they were your own family? Would you treat them like they were one of your children? Or would you kind of say, well, best of wishes to you. I'm glad that you came to know the Lord. I hope you find a good church. When you look at Paul, and actually when you look at Luke's recording of what happened between Paul and the Thessalonian church in Acts chapter 17, what you find is Paul and his friends going to Thessalonica, and they make their way into the synagogue. And this is what Paul does. This is his modus operandi. This is what he normally does. He goes into the synagogue. Why? Because he's familiar with Jewish customs. He was once a Pharisee. He knows how the Jews operate, and he knows how to to relate to them. So he goes into the synagogue, he reasons with them, and Luke tells us in Acts chapter 17 that he reasons with them, he explains to them from the scripture that the Messiah needed to suffer, and this Messiah was the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In Paul, we see the heart of a pastor for his people as he does this. He puts his life on the line. We see a father-like figure. We see dedicated servants who risk their lives for the sake of brand new believers. And is this unusual? Is this strange? That you would, that a, a believer would put his or her life down on the line for people that they just met three weeks ago? Well, maybe in our circles, we wouldn't do that. But we would want to go to our, ho- to our homes and say, well, I'll put you in touch with the pastor I know. Paul didn't do that. And so what is my aim in this message? In fact, what is my aim in the entire series that we're doing in the letters or the prayers of Paul? Over the next month, my aim is to literally zero in on the prayers of Paul as we travel from various churches to the various churches that he has visited. And what's the point? The point is that I need us, I want us, for us to learn how to pray for the very things that we need. Now, that's a broad goal, but what is the more specific goal that I'm getting at? The specific goal for this text today is that we would grow in biblical love for one another, drawing near to one another biblically while we draw near to the Lord and wait for the return of our Savior. I want us to draw near biblically to one another as we are drawing near to the Lord himself. You can't draw near biblically to one another without first drawing near to the Lord. And as we draw near to the Lord, he knits our hearts together. He puts us together and we eagerly await the return of Christ. And we'll see that in our text. I read the entire chapter of 1 Thessalonians 3, but we're going to be focusing on verses 11 through 13. And that's where we are headed. The kind of man that you see in Paul in this letter is a very different man than when you met him at the Damascus Road. This is a man who would go to the high priest as a zealous Pharisee. And he would go to the high priest asking for letters to rip families apart. Why? Because he believed that men and women needed to be brought up on Jewish charges and shown the right way according to the law so that they can lead their families in a godly way. Except Paul will tell you himself that he tore families apart because he was so zealous for God or what he thought was being zealous for the Lord. And now we see a very different man. We see a 180 degree turn from that man who was on his way to the Damascus town or city of Damascus. Now we see him going to the Thessalonian church and we see a 180 degree turn where he's now going and he's hoping, he's wishing, he's praying that God would go ahead and cause their love to abound. And so to help us a little bit this morning, there are just three words that I want us, three road stops on the broad highway of desire, of Paul's desire that I want us to look at. The first stop is going to be verse 11, which is the proximity that Paul desires. The second stop will be the stop for maturity, which is in verses 11 or 12 and 13. And then finally, the expectancy that he is looking toward. But first, let's deal with his proximity. Look at verse 11. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 11 and look at what he says. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. 
Paul, don't you have other churches to plant? Don't you have other things to be doing than to be asking to come back to the Thessalonian church? What happened in Thessalonica? Briefly, I stated it earlier, but what actually happened in in the city of Thessalonica? Well, let me read it for you. Luke writes in Acts chapter 17, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, that's three weekends, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah or the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. We'll pause right there. The Thessalonians enjoyed this luxurious city that they lived in. It was started by royalty, the half-sister of Alexander the Great. And this city enjoyed the, royals, the, 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 the royal benefits of Rome at this point in time. Rome loved Thessalonica and the Thessalonian people loved Rome. Why? Because number one, it was, a, it was on a major highway that went from northwest to southeast. So they were a huge trade city. But not only did, that, did they love that, but Rome allowed them to have and install their own government officials. So they were free. And they were free to do what they wanted, provided that they didn't start any riots, provided that they didn't rock the boat. Anyone who rocks the boat is getting kicked out of the city. So Paul comes. In comes Paul. You can come in with all of your gods, but now here comes Paul. And he goes into the synagogue. And a few of the Jews believe the word that he's saying. He reasons from the Old Testament what it is Christ had to come and do. And who is also there? You have the Greeks, a large contingent of Greeks, and the wives of the noble officials in Thessalonica. Next thing you know, the Jews become jealous. Those who didn't believe, they become jealous in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. But in verse 5, Luke tells us, the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. So literally, these Jews made it a point to go into the marketplace, find the most horrendous kinds of people who started trouble and they took time to organize a riot, but they started a riot. Riot in Thessalonica. Now, if you are working on, if you are a law enforcement officer in Thessalonica, this is trouble. If you are a city official, this means trouble for you too. Why? Because if there is a report to Rome that there is a riot in Thessalonica, guess what? You lose all of your privileges. And so the Jews wanted Paul out of there. They said, get him out. But listen to what Luke continues to say. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Again, that takes time. Which means as they were doing this, and it was taking the time to do it, they were thinking about their actions and they were settling it in their hearts to get rid of this man. They formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, which is Paul and Silas, 
they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the whole city got really upset. They attacked Jason because he was providing some sort of hospitality to them. He heard that these were brothers that were coming into town, and he said, you know what, I'll open my house to them. And so he invited them in. But look at the wording in chapter 17. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. In in essence, what they're saying is, Paul and Silas and all of his company of brothers are behaving like enemies of the state, and you need to try them for treason. Now, that's a serious charge. That's a really serious charge. That's not like saying you robbed the 7-Eleven down the street. That's not like saying, well, they were just going from chariot to chariot, seeing which one was unlocked so that they can rob it. They weren't doing that. They were bringing them before the government officials and they said, these men are spies. These men are doing things that are contrary to our government. And if we want to maintain our peaceful and orderly conduct in government, we need to get rid of these men. We can't find them. So let's go after the one who provided hospitality to them, the one who harbored them. And so what did they do to Jason? They dragged him out and they took money from them. So, Paul is now being ripped apart from them. We go back to 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul is ripped apart from them. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. They let Paul and Silas out by night. They let him out by night, probably because the Jews and the law enforcement officials were on guard, looking in every way for these men. If they could have wanted posters posted all over Thessalonica, they probably would have had Paul and Silas's face posted there. So they had to leave by night. And Paul's language is that we were torn away from you. The language here, this word that we were torn away is the same language that's used when you rip a child from its parents. You know, you call Child Protective Services and Child Protective Services come and says, you know what, you are not able or fit to have these children with you. We're taking them away from you. The look of horror that a parent faces. And that's the kind of language that Paul is using. Not that he knew Child Protective Services back then, but... The idea is families are being torn apart. And in fact, the nuance for this word torn away is the idea that the kid is immediately made an orphan because of that. So what is Paul saying? Paul in verse 11, he's saying, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, he ties the Lord Jesus' divinity with the Father's divinity so that we see the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he says he wants the Father and the Son to direct our way to you because we were torn away from you like you were our children that were torn from our home. Now, the miracle of all of this is that this only happened in three weeks. How in the world does that happen? 
Like you read this and you say to yourself, come on, Paul, get over it. You just knew these guys. They can handle themselves. But the Spirit worked in such a way between Paul, Silas, and Timothy and the Thessalonian congregation that their hearts were knit together for those three weeks. So much so that look at the language that he uses in chapter 2, verses 6, he, he, or verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, so he's using parental language here, You know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Or in verse six or verse seven, he says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He wants to be in their face. He wants to be with them. And. When we come to this, we can't just take this lightly. Especially in today's modern age where everyone is separated by a four and a half inch screen that tells them and brings the world to them called a smartphone. Yes, there are wonders about technology. There are wonders about seeing people face to face via FaceTime or whatever it is. But the reality is is that even if Paul had that technology, he would say, I still want to see you face to face. There's something qualitatively different about seeing a person face to face where you can read their body language. You can look them directly in the eye that a camera cannot do. So Paul says, I want to see you face to face. You see this come up again in John's letter. John the Apostle, he says, I have many things to write to you, but I don't want to write them with pen and ink. I want to see you face to face. And ultimately, where do they get that? They get that from the Lord Jesus himself. God himself who comes in the flesh to see his people face to face. And this is what John ends with in Revelation 21, that we will see him face to face. This proximity that Paul is looking to have with his people is not the same proximity that he was looking to have before his conversion. Before his conversion, all he wanted to do was make them do the right thing. But now that he knows the Lord, that the Lord has seen Paul and and that Paul has seen the Lord on the Damascus road face to face, he wants that same experience with the Thessalonians. Proximity. Paul is fully aware that unless the Lord makes the way, their plans will be frustrated. Already he mentions it twice. He says that Satan hindered them in verse eight, two, in chapter 2, verse 18. Satan hindered us. Satan literally made the way to the Thessalonian congregation really, really difficult. And this is to highlight the reality that as we try to come and make our way, even to Sunday mornings, whatever corporate gathering there is between God's people, that there is a real devil and that he is God's devil for sure. But Satan will always make a way to try to hinder us from being face to face. And this is why we must pray, just like Paul is praying, Lord, please direct my way to be with God's people, even on Sundays. 
Lord, help me to make every effort to do what I can to be with God's people on Wednesday night prayer meeting. Lord, I want to meet with these people during the week. Lord, I, have, I want to spend time with them for lunch. Please make a way for me to have lunch with these people. You can put it in your calendars. You can write it. You can even put it with black ink in your calendars. But unless the Lord makes your way, your way may be frustrated. Things come up. So we pray and we ask the Lord, please make a way. And this is what Paul was doing. Notice in chapter 2, we'll go back to chapter 2, verse 17. He uses the word, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. The idea is he is looking for every opportunity. You know, we, we, we have a saying that a thief is a thief no matter what, unless the Lord changes him. But a, a thief would always, will always find a way. Same thing with someone who works for counterintelligence. They're always looking for a way in. They're always looking for a way to get in to get what they want. And if you're working counterintelligence, let's say for a, a firm or for even the government, you're looking for all of the loopholes. And your eye is always on the lookout just for one little mistake that someone else would make so that you can get in. And this is the idea. This is the weight that, th- that comes behind this word. We endeavored to see you, to be with you more eagerly. In other words, every single opportunity, Paul was sitting down with Silas and Timothy and saying, is this the time? Can we do this? If we go now, is it going to be hard? If we go now, or when can we do this? They don't give it a rest. And again, this is the work of the Spirit. So we look at his desire to be close to them, proximity. But then we go to verse 12. And you see the forward moving momentum of his prayer. Not only does he want to be face to face with them, but there's a reason behind that. And that's that they would grow in Christian maturity. Verse 12, he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish, and this is the Lord now, so that the Lord may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What does Christian maturity look like? What does it look like? If Paul's desire is to return to them in order to care for them and to put their faith and understanding in the ways of the Lord in right order, what is he intending to do? Answer, he wants them to grow in love. He wants their love to grow for one another. And this is not the kind of love that makes you feel good. If we look at biblical love, the difference between biblical love Christian love and the world's love is that biblical love will sacrifice its own life comforts and all of its luxuries in order to make sure that you are okay. It would even lay its own life down for you. Funny, we see that in our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 says that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Paul was willing to go and lay his life down for the Thessalonian people that he only met three weeks ago. Can you say the same thing about your brothers and sisters here? Can we say the same thing about one another? You get a phone call at 11 o'clock at night. 
you're in bed. You're ready to go to bed and get a good night's rest. And someone says, can we talk? Response? Oh, man. Can we do it tomorrow? Is it urgent? Now, there's a place for that. But this is not just, this is going down to the disposition of the heart. The disposition of Paul's heart was he was willing to be inconvenienced to the max in order to see his brothers and sisters. Because the people of God are naturally people who do not get along with one another, we see nothing short of Christian love and a miracle. Tell me, what is a Jew? This sounds like the beginning of a joke, but I promise it's not. What does a Jew have to do with the Greek? What does a Greek have to do with the noble aristocracy of Thessalonica? How do you get a Jewish person, a Greek person who has no promises given to them and a member of the aristocracy in the same building together for one purpose? If you're in the world, unless there's money involved, well, the the aristocrats don't need money. They have it. They have everything that they, they, they can ask for. But what about the Jew and the Greek? How do you get them together to work together, to play together? It's nothing short of a miracle. And this is exactly what the people of God look like. All of us coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds, coming together by the work of the Spirit. There is no way, there is no possible way that you can tell me that you can look at one another in the eye and you can say, I naturally would have loved to hang out with you from all of eternity. It didn't happen that way. How did it happen? The Spirit of God working in your heart to produce love. And this is exactly what Paul is wanting, that their love would abound more and more. In fact, if there was a limit to the seas, he's saying, I want the love like the ocean to overflow in your hearts so that you are growing and laying down your lives for one another, doing everything that it, that it takes in order for you guys to grow in knowing the Lord. That is what Paul is praying for. So he's praying for love. But not only is he praying for love, this is not just a a feeling. This is a conscientious decision, understanding what the Lord has done for us in order to inconvenience our own lives for the sake of our brothers and sisters. He not only prays for that, but he also prays, and this is the second time that he has mentioned this word, In one chapter, he prays that they would be established in their hearts, blameless. This is the the mind, the will, the affections, all of the person being established in their hearts so that they would live lives of holiness before the Lord. So Christian maturity not only has love growing and growing and growing, but you have the establishing of believers as their feet are squarely planted on Christ. And as they're going through trials, which is what the Thessalonians were going through, as they're going through trials in every windstorm, they're holding on to Christ and they're looking over their shoulder and they're saying, hold on, hold on. And the other person says, how do you hold on? And you say, look, I'm holding on to Christ. You do the same. Look at my hands. Look at my life. Look at how I'm doing this. Hold on to Christ. Now, why would they do that? Why would Paul pray for this? 
Because there was a real temptation for the Thessalonians to go back to their old ways of life. Times get hard for you, Thessalonian Christian? Well, look at Paul. This is probably what some of the husbands were saying to their wives. That man couldn't have loved you. Those pastors were probably frauds. Look at how they left town so quickly. In fact, they're charged with being enemies of the state. How could those pastors love you? They left at night. They didn't even say goodbye to you. Why would you join that group? It's better for you to stay away from those people. Dad, I want to be like that Pastor Paul because he looks like a cool superhero. No, you don't. Don't be like that and don't be like your mother who's joining that group. So what's the temptation of the wives? Maybe he's right. Maybe I should go back to my old ways. Maybe I should go back to the marketplace and sacrifice gods to the gods. Maybe I should do that for the Jews and the Greeks. Maybe it was better to go back to what we did before. And Paul is saying, don't do that. In chapter, in, in, in chapter 3, verse 3, he wants them to be established. He sends Timothy to them. And he says to them, I sent Timothy, or we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Afflictions have a funny way of making you want to go back. And they have an easy way to make you want to complain. Lord, take us back. You really would just want to kill us. We shouldn't even be here, Lord. If you are really God, if you really care for me, why don't we just go back when life was simpler and when life was easier? Leave me alone, Lord. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I don't even know if I'm praying it, if, if, uh, if, if you're real. And this is probably what some of the Thessalonians were saying. Have you felt that way? What does Paul do? And look at the beauty of how the whole Godhead works. The Father sending and the Spirit working and everyone, everyone's eyes being pointed to Christ. Look at how the whole Godhead is at work here. The Father and the Son send and the Spirit encourages and uses Timothy to build up the church. He hears these prayers. Proximity. Maturity and expectancy is what the last one is. Paul's desire that they would love is nothing short of what Jesus said. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And now, what is the goal? What's the purpose? Because Paul really truly believes that there is a king in heaven who rules all of the kings of the earth, who rules over all, all governors, over all principalities, over all civil magistrates, and that is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a figment of the imagination. This is not some cute, oh, I'm glad you found God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ he's proclaiming. And the Lord Jesus Christ that he is proclaiming is coming back. And look, what he, look at what he says. He says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Period. No period. It's Lord Jesus with all his saints. You know, when the Lord come, came down to speak to Moses, to give him the, the law on the, on the tablets of stone, 
You know what Moses writes in Deuteronomy? That the Lord came with thousands. He comes with an entourage. You ever see the presidential motorcade? You wonder why there's so many SUVs? You ever see a a royal, a king or a queen coming and they have all these cars with flags and then they have motorcyclists, then they have a parade in front of them or behind them or around them? Well, that looks, that pales in comparison to the amount of people that are coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's Paul's goal? If I pray for love, if I pray that the Lord would send us back to you so that I can see you face to face, my joy is satisfied. If I pray that the Lord would establish you and strengthen you and make your love to abound more and more and more, then you will be ready like a bride is ready on her wedding day for the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great day. And I think one of the things that maybe causes us to stumble in our Christian life is that we don't think of that great day enough. We don't think that that day could be today. When people talk about the return of Christ, they're like, well, he's probably going to return September 31st, 2025. It's not a real number. There are no 31 days in September. But they're thinking somewhere along the future, somewhere along the timeline of history, somewhere out there, the Lord will return. But for Paul and for the Thessalonian Christians, it could be any moment. And when it happens, these three week old believers are going to see other believers who went through the afflictions and who went through the trials. And they're going to see them coming with the Lord Jesus himself. This is the Christian hope. And this is why the doctrine of the resurrection is so important. When believers go home to be with the Lord, what happens? They are in the presence of the Lord. Yes, it hurts because death does have its sting a little bit. But in Christ, that sting is taken away because we know we will see our brothers and sisters face to face one day. And it could be today. So how are you going to prepare for that great wedding day? That's essentially what Paul is getting at. He is wanting their hearts to be established, blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Proximity, maturity, and expectancy. Where does that leave you and me? I said in the beginning that my aim was that we would grow in biblical love for one another, drawing near to one another biblically, while we are drawing near to the Lord, waiting for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do that by being honest with ourselves, really. Look at your heart. Ask yourself, what characterizes my heart desires more? This is why we pray that the Lord would wean us away from this world, wean us off of the cares of this world. You can have 10,000 villas. You can have all of the things that this world could ever give you. But if you don't have Christ, you forfeited your life. And for the people in Thessalonica, not the church, for the people, the Thessalonians, the citizens of Thessalonica, they would rather have the world and leave off Christ and Paul and all of those companions with him. And what does Jesus say? Whoever seeks his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, why for my sake? Why is it for my sake? 
because he is the resurrection and the life. He is the only one that can cause dry bones to come back together, to cause all of the sinews of your flesh to come back together, to resurrect you and to have a conversation with you. Didn't he do that with Lazarus? And so he does that with us. This is nothing short of a miracle. When you come to know the Lord, he has resurrected you. You were his enemies at one point, and he has resurrected you from the dead, brought you out of the deep, dark dungeons of death and Satan and despair, and he's brought you to life. This is why when you look at another believer, you are literally witnessing a miracle right in front of your eyes. They might not act like a miracle that day, but you are witnessing a miracle of the Lord's design. This is something only the Lord can do. And Paul, Timothy, and Silas understood this. How do we get to the point where we are astonished at the miracle that God has done? We pray just like Paul prayed. We pray, Lord, bring us face to face with my brothers and sisters. Bring me to wanting to spend more time with my brothers and sisters. Cause my love to abound with my brothers and sisters. Cause me to grow in loving my Savior and seeing Him face to face. Cause that love to grow so that we lay our lives down for one another. And we can can say to the Lord, I don't want to be inconvenienced, but Lord, help me to be inconvenienced for the sake of my brothers. We can pray that. Lord, help me to wait eagerly for that day that the Lord Jesus is coming. It could be today. You don't know if you will make it home at the end of this day. Are you ready to see your Savior face to face today? Are you ready? And wouldn't it be even more joyful to know that if you saw your Savior face to face, you'll you'll see Him with your brothers and sisters. Finally, the last thing that I want to point out is just how Trinitarian Paul is. The whole Godhead at work. I mentioned this earlier. But God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the work of the Spirit, working to produce the fruit of the Spirit, love. The Spirit at work to send ministers who have pastoral hearts, who care for the people, so that like physicians, they are working on the hearts of men. The work of the Spirit is seen explicitly here as he causes the chief of his fruit to abound and grow. Love between believers. And this is coupled with taking the things of Christ and making it plain to them through the work of Paul. This is why pastors are important. This is why the communion of the saints is important. This is why the Lord's Day is not like any other day in the week. Only on the Lord's Day do all of God's people get together to hear the preaching of the Word on a regular basis all over the world. And if you're looking at the world as if it's a blanket of darkness, on Sundays you will see lights go up. Oh, that light is the Haven Church. Oh, that light is Trinity Church. Oh, that light is Reformation. Oh, that light is another church, another church. This is a church in Indonesia. They're praising the Lord. And on that day... The Lord is meeting with his people. Do you believe that the Lord actually meets with you today? He does. And so how do we pray? We pray like this. Lord, help me. 
We learn to pray for proximity, that we would long to see one another. For maturity, that we would grow in love and be established. And for expectancy to be weaned off of the cares of this world and look to the day that we will see our Lord and the faces of every single one of our friends, our brothers and sisters, together with the Lord. And we don't stop. We don't stop. So let's pray together.